She never heard the sound that came out of it. Jessica was already feeling the agony lick at the tops of her legs as she lurched away from the fence and started to run. Long distant from it now, Carol Chamberlain imagined the panic and the pain. With hindsight, she was everywhere, able to see and hear it all. She saw girls' mouths gape like those of old women. She saw Jessica carve a ragged path across the playground, her arms flailing. She heard the screams, the sizzle as the hair caught. She watched a child move like a thrown firework, skittering across a pavement, slowing down, fizzing. And she saw the face of a man, of Rooker, as he turned and jogged away down the slope. Carol Chamberlain stared at the phone. She thought about the anonymous call she had received twenty minutes earlier, the simple message from a man who could not possibly have been Gordon Rooker. I burned her. The train was stationary, somewhere between Golders Green and Hampstead, when the woman stepped into the carriage. Just gone seven on a Monday night. The passengers a pretty fair cross-section of Londoners, all human life, in replica football kits and Oxfam chic and chirochitirio casuals. Heads bouncing against windows and lolling in sleep, or nodding in time to Coldplay or Craig David or DJ Shadow. Within a second or two of the woman coming through the door, the atmosphere in the carriage had changed, from buttoned up to fully locked down. English in extremis. Tom Thorne looked at her just long enough to take in the headscarf and the thick, dark eyebrows and the baby cradled beneath one arm. Then he looked away. He was aware of the hand that was thrust out as the woman stood over him. He could see the polystyrene cup, the top of it, picked at. He could hear the woman speak softly in a language he didn't understand and didn't need to. She shook the cup and Thorne heard nothing rattle. Then it became a routine, the cup held out, the question asked, the plea ignored, and on to the next. Thorne looked up as she moved away down the carriage, feeling an ache building in his gut as he stared at the curve of her back beneath a dark cardigan, the stillness of the arm that supported her baby. He turned away as the ache sharpened into a stab of sorrow for her, and for himself. Thorne was still depressed when he kicked the door of his flat shut behind him. From the living room, a voice was suddenly raised, sullen and wounded, above the noise of the television. What bloody time do you call this? Thorne took four steps down the hall and turned to see Phil Hendricks stretched out on the sofa. The pathologist was taller, skinnier, and at thirty-three, ten years younger than Thorne. He was wearing black, as always, with the usual assortment of rings, spikes and studs through most of the available space on and around his face. There were other piercings elsewhere, but Thorne wanted to know as little about those as possible. Hendricks pointed the remote and flicked off the television. Dinner will be utterly ruined. The jokey attempt at being Queenie in his flat Mancunian accent made Thorne smile. Right, Thorne said. Like you can even boil an egg. What are we having anyway? Hendricks rubbed a hand across his closely shaved skull. I'm having the usual plus an extra mushroom bhaji. 
Thorne picked up Hendrick's biker boots from in front of the sofa and carried them out into the hall. Then he picked up the phone and called the Bengal Lancer. Hendricks had been sleeping on Thorne's sofa bed since just after Christmas, when the collection of mushrooms growing in his own place had reached monstrous proportions. The builders and damp-proofers were supposed to be there for less than a week, but the reality hadn't quite matched up. Thorne was still unsure why Hendricks hadn't just moved in with his current boyfriend, Brendan. He spent a couple of nights a week there as it was. Thorne's best guess was that, with a relationship as on and off as theirs, even a temporary move would have been risky. Thorne enjoyed the company. They discussed, fully and frankly, the relative merits of Spurs and Arsenal. They argued about Thorne's consuming love of country music. They bickered about Thorne's sudden passion for tidiness. While they were waiting for the curry to arrive, Hendrick said, Mickey Clayton died as a result of gunshot wounds to the head. Thorne peered across the top of his beer can. I'm guessing that wasn't one of your trickier ones, what with most of his head plastered all over the walls when we found him. Thorne enjoyed taking the piss. Aside from being just about his closest friend, Hendricks was the best pathologist Thorne had ever worked with. Did you get the bullet? Thorne asked. The killer had used a nine-millimetre weapon. What was left of the bullets had been found near the previous victims, or still inside what was left of their skulls. You won't need a match to tell you it's the same killer. The X. It had been obvious when the body had been discovered the previous morning. The nylon shirt hoiked up to the neck, the blood trails running from two deep diagonal cuts, left shoulder to right hip and vice versa. Still not sure about the blade. Could be a machete, something like that. Whoever's paying him, he's enjoying the work. I can't be a hundred percent sure, but I think he does his bit of creative carving while they're still alive. The man responsible for the death of Mickey Clayton, and three men before him in the previous six weeks, was like no contract killer Thorne had ever come across. To men who were willing to kill for anything upwards of a few thousand pounds, anonymity was everything. This one was different. He liked to leave his mark. X marks the spot, Thorne said. Or X as in crossed out. Hendricks drained his can. So what about you? Good day at the office, dear? Thorne tried in vain to remember his last good day at the office. His team at the Serious Crime Group West had been seconded to help out the project's team at SO7, the Serious and Organised Crime Unit. Organised was one thing this particular operation was not. The resources of SO7 were stretched paper thin. There was a major turf war between two old family firms south of the river and an escalation in disputes among triad gangs that had seen three shootings in one week. All the same, Thorne suspected that he and his team were basically there to cover other people's asses. If arrests were ever made, the credit would go elsewhere, and anyway there was precious little satisfaction in chasing down those responsible for getting rid of pond life, like Mickey Clayton. The series of fatal X shootings was a major assault on the operations of one of North London's biggest gangland families, but the project's team hadn't the first idea who was doing the assaulting. It had become clear that a major new operation had established itself and was keen to make a splash. Thorne and his team were on board to find out who they were. Who was paying a contract killer?
quickly dubbed the X-Man, to hurt the Ryan family. "'He's making life hard for himself, though, isn't he?' Thorne said now. "'This X-thing limits what he can do, where he can do it. "'He can't just ride up on a motorbike or wait for them outside a pub. "'He needs a bit of time and space.' "'Hendricks took another can. "'He obviously puts a lot of effort into his work. "'I bet he's expensive.' It's still cheap, though, isn't it, when you think about it? To kill someone, I mean. Twenty, twenty-five grand's about top whack. What do you reckon I can get for a couple of hundred quid? Hendricks asked. There's his mortuary assistant who's getting on my tits. Thorne thought about it for a second. Chinese bone? The laugh was the first decent one that Thorne could remember sharing with anyone for days. You can't be the Yardies, Hendricks said when he'd stopped giggling, or Yakuza. We know our hitman's not black or Japanese. A witness claimed to have seen the killer leaving the scene of the third murder and had given a vague description of a white male in his thirties. The witness, Marcus Maloney, was an associate of the Ryan family and not what you'd call an upright citizen, but he seemed pretty sure about what he'd seen. It's not that simple, Thorne said. Ten years ago, people stuck to their own, but now the triads use Yardies, Yardies work with the Russians. They nicked a gang of Yakutsa last year for recruiting outside schools. They were signing up Greek lads, Asians, Turks, whoever. Hendricks smiled. Nice to see they're all equal opportunities, employers. Thorne grunted and picked at the goatee he'd grown towards the end of the previous year. The beard covered up the scar from a knife wound that ran diagonally across Thorne's chin, the only visible reminder of a night when he'd both begged for his life and prayed for death to come quickly.